Well, hello there. How you doing? Hope you're having an amazing week. Hope you're having an amazing day. Hope you're having an amazing five-minute period prior to listening to me say these words. Uh, this episode, I was super stoked to have the amazing Erin Jeffords back uh, to talk about her passion. You may remember Erin from the episode that we did around job interviews uh, and her expertise in that area. Well, it turns out she's also very, very passionate about false prevention. So uh, what could I do? We had to have a conversation about it. So please welcome back Erin Jeffords and let's kick this off. G'day, my name's Brock Cook and welcome to Occupied. In this podcast, we're aiming to put the occupation in occupational therapy. We explore the people, topics, theories, and underpinnings that make this profession so incredible. If you're new here, you can find all of our previous episodes and resources at OccupiedPodcast.com. But for now, let's roll the episode. Well, I lived with my great-grandmother until she was 96, so... I had her in my life for 16 years, and I think just being around her, I just knew that I wanted to work with older adults. I just loved older adults. I just connected with older adults, and not to say I never connected with children. I have two children of my own, and I love children, but I was one of the OTs that went to school knowing exactly what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to work with older, the older population. And I knew I did not want to work in pediatrics. So that was, <laughs> um, and Fine, I, there's, I there's love very few OTs that don't want to work in pediatrics for some right. reason. Right. And I was probably out of my class. And I think we had 32 students and my, in my class. And I was one of two that did not want to work in pediatrics. The irony is that the majority of the ones that did go into pediatrics are no longer working in pediatrics. You know, they've moved into other, (laughs) Um, but that's kind of, I just always, I, I was thinking about this the other day and I was trying to explain it to a student of mine. And she said, how did you know you wanted to work with older adults? And I just said, I just feel like I have this light inside of me that shines brighter when I'm around older people versus anyone else. It's like I just have this instant connection with them, and I just feel like that's where I need to be. So that's kind of what led me into working with older adults, but I, I thought about different health professions. I did a lot of shadowing in college, and um, I actually waited four years after college. I worked um, a couple of different jobs and then went back to school. So I was actually one of the older people in my class as well, you know, the ripe old age of 27, yeah. <laughs> right? um, I, I, so when I went back to school, I was, you know, I had worked for a few years and so I had some life experience some job experience. And so I felt like I was really making a good career move at that point. Cause I knew what I wanted to do. I had tried other things and I really did spend a lot of time kind of getting an a good grasp on what occupational therapy is. I, I think a lot of students maybe go into it now, not really completely understanding what it is. And I do feel like that was a strength that I had going into school. I knew what I was getting myself into. So 
um, that's kind of what led me to OT, which is my love for older adults and, and then just trying different things, you know, out prior to going to graduate school. So, so when you, when you graduated, obviously, I'm assuming you went into working with older adults, but what were you, what was your job? What was your first job um, out of, out of uni? So my father, um, my father actually was, he had colon cancer and he was a real estate agent. So he, um, here in the United States, like, I, I'm not sure how it works where you are, but we have people that, um, kind of represent homes. You know, when you want to buy a home, you hire someone to help sell you a home or sell your home. And so I actually worked with him briefly. I was terrible <laughs> at that job. Um, and then I actually worked for a medical equipment company. Okay. Um, so I was in sales. So, um, I do think that sometimes my sales training also helped me because it really forces you to get out of your comfort zone when you're in sales because you just have to learn how to talk to people, you know. And um, so I did I did did that. But I knew that wasn't what I wanted to do long term. I always knew I wanted to go back to school. It just took me four years to get there. I had to go back and get some prerequisites and um, volunteer hours and, you know, kind of work on my my application really to get into school so when you finished you passed your your board exam became an OT where did you go then so I went to a graduate program I was I graduated with a master's and it was affiliated with a university the university was affiliated with a hospital organization okay. so we were one unit which was really great. I mean, it was all blends on campus together. So I was very lucky. I got a job actually at that hospital. Um, I've in acute care and I absolutely loved it. That was what I did. My last level two fieldwork assignment was in acute care. So I felt very ready for acute care. And that was the job that I sought out. So I did that initially for a year. And then my, um, now husband, but boyfriend at the time, moved to Washington, D.C., and I took a leap there and followed him <laughs> and uh, worked in an inpatient rehabilitation hospital. And I will say that second job was by far the, the best job I could have gotten as a new grad, had, having only been out for a year. And really, it just set the tone for the rest of my career. It was um, in a, I worked primarily in a brain injury unit in a on in an re, inpatient rehabilitation hospital, but it was just a very fast-paced environment. It was, you know, so many different diagnoses I got to see, and working with so many people that were so much smarter than me. <laughs> yeah, um, that really kind of helped up my game. I felt like that was the the best training as a new grad was working somewhere where I almost felt like. I wasn't good enough to be there, but I, it helped me like push myself to kind of acquire the skills that I needed to do the job. Bit of imposter syndrome seeping in there. Oh, absolutely. Definitely as a new grad. I mean, I think, um, yeah, I, I definitely had it the first two years out. And I think after two years, my confidence level, definitely working in that facility and, um, doing it every day and working with a team of, you know, it's very, it, it was very interdisciplinary. We had, you know, I was working with, there were 34 OTs on staff, 32 PTs on staff, 
20 speech therapists. I mean, it was just a, a great interdisciplinary model and um, you, know, you just have such a great support system. So that really helped me kind of get over that imposter syndrome in the beginning. That's awesome. So where did, uh, when did you sort of start to feel like you were really able to work in your passion area? So with older people, where did you, how, how did you make that, did this world bullied? and this world <laughs> come together as one? Um, so I, I, when I say, like, when I was working in the hospital, acute care, inpatient rehab, it was always adult you know, so 18 and older, you know, so even though I was working with, you know, sometimes it would be in the brain injury unit, I might work with a patient that was 18 years old, or I might have a patient that was 95 years old. So I mean, I was working really with a um, lots of different age ranges, but I decided after, actually, I became a mother, the birth of my first child that I wanted to kind of step back from the hustle and bustle of the hospital. And so I started working part-time um, in an assisted living facility. And then I would work PRN on the weekends in the inpatient rehab. So I kind of had the best of both worlds. I was still able to have that hospital experience, and, um, but I had the flexibility of being a new parent and not having the long hours and the commute. So that was kind of how I transitioned. And I did that. Um, I've been in OT now for a little over 11 years. So I did that seven years ago. So I, okay. seven years ago, I transitioned more into the community, you know, working in assisted living and primarily focusing on older adults. So that was a good, it was a good bridge for me because the hospital setting, the inpatient setting of hospital and inpatient rehab, just, I, it really prepared me for what I would see, you know, when people leave those facilities, you know, when they're back, you're returning to their home in the community. So it was, like I said, it was great training, but that's kind of how I made that transition. One, I mean, the, the way we connected is, is via Insta through your, (laughs) your Instagram account, the OT advocate. Uh, And a lot of the uh, resources and materials and, just general thoughts that you're posting on that Instagram account is around falls. Correct. Why, how, how big an issue is falls when it comes to health? So I'll, um, I'll backtrack a little bit. When I was in the hospital on the brain injury unit, I, I had patients there for all, you know, lots of different reasons, but the majority of the patients that I treated were there with a traumatic brain injury due to a fall, you know, and that is here in the U.S., that's the leading cause of traumatic brain injury, our fall. Wow. So, you, yeah, it's, it's... I never it's, would have guessed that. I would have thought, I would have thought yeah. it would be like car accidents or something exactly. like more dramatic. The misconception, and, and I think as an early practitioner, that was always my misconception too. I remember, you know, I would go into a chart review and I would read and I'd say, oh, wow, this person fell down. They're here because they fell down the stairs or they fell off a curb and hit the back of their head or, um, you know, and then you have those falls, you know, due to other issues, you know, maybe possibly somebody was drinking or they were doing something unsafe, like climbing up an unsteady ladder, you know, I mean, you have those, but then you have the, just the lady that was shopping and, you know, 
slipped in the grocery store and fell. You know, I mean, these are, that was the bulk of the people I was treating when I was working on the unit. Um, so that was really kind of an eye opener for me. Yeah. Wow. And then here, you know, here in the United States, we have, you know, I can, the, the data is kind of boring, but it's important to know. And I think um, knowing that like one in four older adults here in the U.S., and when I say older adults, over the age of 65, falls every year. And th those are just the people that are reporting falls, you know? So think of all the people that are not reporting falls, you know, because of reasons. I mean, we can go down a list of reasons of why they're not, but, you know, so one out of four, it is the leading cause of injury-related deaths here in the U.S. over the age of 65. So... That those numbers alone, you know, you can go to um, really any website here. It's the Centers for Disease Control or AOTA or, you know, all of it. And they have those facts, you know, but I guess mm. those are just not the facts people hear. We don't really do a great job, I think, of advertising that, <laughs> um, of how, you know, falling can, how basically um, large those numbers are. You know, so it, that was something that I just think working in the population that I was working with, more community dwelling older adults. So I'm seeing people more, you know, in their homes or in the assisted living facilities or uh, senior centers and knowing how destructive, not to say destructive, but, you know, just impactful a fall could be to their life. You know, a fall could result in not just a hospitalization, but also, you know, having to leave their home relocate their lives so you know fall if we can do anything you know to prevent a fall anything you know i feel like that would it's a great resource as an ot so that was how i started getting interested in researching falls so so is it, i'm actually oh sorry i was gonna say is the is it a false like i don't know how to phrase this is it more, is there more damage done during falls, like for people over 65? Is that why that age cutoff is sort of, because I see that age sort of a lot in right. the research, but is that the kind of like, if you're over 65, there's a, a higher risk of it, you know, causing more brain damage or having more severe repercussions kind of thing, or are falls well, think, falls no matter where you are in the age group? Well, I think as you age, you know, there, there's the other misconception that fall falling is a normal part of aging, but it's not, you know, it's just the cutoff, I think, is that that is the population that they're having a higher incidence of falls, but we have to figure out, you know, um, and like you said, due to the higher incidence of falls, there's a more positive correlation with injury, hospitalization, you know, um, but why, why are they having those falls? You know, what, so trying to figure out what's causing the falls, but yes, I mean, as, as we get older, unfortunately, you know, I think we just don't, you know, our, our bones are more fragile and, you know, I mean, the, the things that happen, you know, when you fall, um, you're at a higher risk for injury. Yep. So, you know, we have to think about that, but, um, I do like to kind of preface it with that, with the students that I'm working with that, you know, falling is not normal. So mm -hmm. if someone's telling you they're falling, 
you know, that's not, that's not normal. We need to figure out why they're falling. Um, and so dig a little bit deeper, you know, ask, ask questions, you know, to figure out, you know, use your skills as a therapist to assess, you know, what's really going on. So um, that's, that's one of the things I really like to encourage people to do. And another thing about falls is, well, falling is anyone can fall, you know, so my daughter fell a few months ago and broke her leg here in our house. My mother-in-law fell in our backyard and broke her arm on Christmas day. (laughs) So I've had two people in my immediate family fall, both resulting in hospital, I mean, not not hospital, the ER visit, emergency room visits, both resulting in um, one surgery, one, both a cast. So, I mean, thinking in the scope of everyone is at a risk for falling. And I think if practitioners and students go into that kind of having that expectation that anybody they work with is at a risk for a fall, you know, and kind of looking at it like that versus just older adults, you know, just everyone. (laughs) Can't put my hand up and say that I fell over like two weeks ago. (laughs) Oh, no. Did you hurt yourself? I, a little bit. I twisted uh, like a sprained it like a muscle in my back, but it was all right. It wasn't. Okay. It could have been worse. Right. I just slipped on. What, what were you doing? Slip. I was, I would had been outside, like cleaning our patio, so it was all wet. My feet and everything were all wet, and mm-hmm. I stepped over the door runner to come back inside, okay. and my wet feet just on the tiles just went foot, and that was it. There you go. It was, I was on the floor before I even realized what had happened. And then you, you already, you know, as an OT, like all the things that led to the, the fall, put you at a higher risk for falling. So I, uh, when I was in the hospital as well, when I was working in the hospital, we had fall prevention task force, you know, in inpatient facilities, you know, in hospitals and nursing homes. sounds like homes, a TV show. Right? I a like task it. Force, you know? Fall prevention task get, force. Um, and you, you get together and, you, you know, it's ner- physicians and nursing and administrators and therapists, physical therapists, occupational therapists. You know, we all get together and we talk about what we can do collectively to prevent falls. So I think if, like I was saying, if you treat everyone as a fall risk and also if everyone has a role in fall risk prevention, you know, it's not just the role of the OT. Or it's not just the role of the physical therapist, or it's not just the role of the nurse. It's everyone's role, you know. So we all have to look. If we can look at it that way too, I think it it just helps. Uh, it helps the client, you know, because it's not falling on one per one just one discipline. You know, everyone's collectively working together. So what what are the main, I guess, risk factors for people falling? So. There are quite a few. <laughs> um, so there, if one of the main things, and, and this does fall, I mean, it does fall under the scope of occupational therapy, but working, you know, with physical therapists, and I've worked, and I'm sure you have too, you know, working with physical therapists, kind of assessing that gait and balance. So if someone has any instability with their balance or gait, that's obviously going to put them at a higher risk for fall. So you know, you want to make sure that if you're working with in any type of interdisciplinary model, and let's say that the physical therapist has discharged the patient or the physical therapist is 
recommending, I mean, if, I'm sorry, the physical therapist has discharged the patient, but you're still seeing those balance instabilities, you know, you need to communicate that. Or if the physical therapist has prescribed some type of um, adaptive equipment, you know, they've assigned a cane or a walker and the patient's not using it, you know, that's another thing that puts them at a risk. Yeah, when yeah. People aren't compliant with their equipment. So, I mean, my grandmother was guilty of that. She had, a, she was supposed to use a walker and she would furniture walk, you know, through yeah. the house, hallway walk and furniture walk. And she was actually on oxygen as well. So she would walk around with her nasal cannulas, you know, all wrapped around her feet. And I mean, she was just a fall risk waiting to happen. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, and she fell all the time. I mean, that was just, and she wouldn't listen to me because I was her granddaughter, you know, but, um, but listening to someone else, you know, that maybe a therapist or a nurse, you know, they can make those recommendations, but balance and gait instabilities are one of the things kind of we initially assess. So, I mean, I've worked in places where, you know, OT, it's very distinct, like, the PT does this assessment and the OT does this assessment. And then I've worked in facilities where, you know, we can, we kind of both do some of the same, there's some overlap, but I do encourage, so my students, I am an adjunct and I do encourage my students to, you know, learn, you know, all of the balance assessments. And we do that and we practice it in lab. You know, we practice the Berg, the Tinetti, the timed up and go. Um, we practice all of those because, even though they may not be the practitioner administrating those assessments routinely, I feel, I feel um, that it's important that they know how to do them. You know, do you, are you, do, or say in the settings that you've worked in, do the OTs administer those or is that more the physical therapist? It's interesting. Cause I, I've falls, was honestly really only started to be looked at in the settings that I worked in not long after, not long before I left uh, clinical practice, only what, five years ago-ish probably. Um, up until then, it was almost this assumption that we're on a mental health ward, why do we need to look at this? Uh, and then they brought out a new documentation suite and it had this falls assessment was part of the sort of mandatory documentation suite uh and it was uh, it wasn't about i can't remember what assessment it was it was a fairly general one it contained all the have pretty much very similar to the one the link on your mm -hmm. your instagram account which i took earlier today to see if i was still a risk <laughs> um but i think predominantly that one was done by the nursing staff uh, i i didn't have a lot of input into it i did a few of them uh, with with the clients that I was directly working with, if I noticed that it hadn't been done with them yet, mm -hmm. um, but there wasn't really. I think because of that that standardised documentation suite was uh, initiated on admission, and generally the admissions were handled by the nurses because they have to do all of their obs and that sort of stuff, so they would handle most of it. Uh, I think they yeah sort of took over that but the the issue i had and one thing that i started pushing for was these forms were being filled out and nothing was happening <laughs> so i was like yeah, whether it was flagged that they were a super high risk or no risk at all there was no like and it wasn't necessarily right. the staff's fault it was like we got given these documents 
but not really told what to do with them. So I'm like, okay, right. so this person's at a, whatever the score was on that assessment, they're a really high risk. Now what? <laughs> like, okay, we've documented they're a high risk. What do we do now? So that was sort of where I think, and that was probably more just me being sensible more than me being an OT, uh, came in sort of more in an advocacy role of, okay, like we need to even as a team come up with how we're going to handle these these uh, different risk levels, if nothing right. else. I mean, and I think it's it's great, like you said, that they were included. You know, OT was part of the conversation because mm. a lot of times we're not. Yeah. You know, we're not part of that conversation. And um, I think that that's one – I mean, if, if you're a new grad or a new practitioner, it, I, I always like to encourage people that you can kind of advocate for your role, you know, the value of the role of OT – and try to ask to be a part of those conversations, you know, ask to be part of those meetings, fall prevention meetings, or like I was mm -hmm. saying, the task force, you know, it's like, try to see if you can insert yourself in that role. And I know that's hard when you're first starting out, but, you know, we have so much to add to that conversation. And I mean, really, we're, we come out of school kind of experts on fall risk prevention, I feel, you know, more than probably any other area of our practice. I mean, I would have to take a, you know, I had to become a certified brain injury therapist. I had to do, you know, all these things to sit for a certain exam or, you know, if I, if I want to have a certification in lymphedema, you know, um, techniques, or I want a certification in kinesio tape, you know, all the certifications you have to go for, and sit for exams, but you come out of school equipped to implement fall risk prevention strategies. You know, I feel like as a new grad, um, but going back to, you know, as far as the, the fall risk, um, you were saying you worked, you know, I know you've worked primarily in mental health. I mean, cognitive issues are mm. cognitive issues. Uh, so any type of side effects were a and medication, really big one. Yes. So medications and I mean, cognition that's impaired, you know, due to medication or, you know, or just baseline cognitive impairment. But a lot of the population that I'm working with, older adults, they are, you know, they're polypharmacy. You know, I look at their list of medications and, you know, I can't even, I, I mean, sometimes I'm like, do you even know what you're taking? You know, so it's a lot of times they, I really encourage them to go back to their physicians and their pharmacists. I mean, that's one thing I advocate here where we are is that my clients have um, their, you know, their pharmacist number, you know, and that's the person that they call because mm. those are the experts, you know, with the medications that they're taking, you know, and then also always consult with their physicians. You know, they come to, to us because they see us and they tell us all these things that are happening, all these you know, all these side effects that they're having. And I'm like, well, have you told your physician any of this? You know, we need to make sure you're communicating that. So medication side effects, um, vision is another one, you know, making sure people are having their vision checked. And oh, so if they are having their vision checked, but they're not wearing their glasses, you know, so. I know many people that are guilty yeah. of that, family members. <laughs> and, and walking, you know, I always ask people on OT eval, you know, or the first time I meet them, even if I'm just their PRN therapist and I'm picking them up for the day, you know, do you wear glasses? You know, if, 
if so, where are they? You know, if, if they're in the hospital, a lot of times people don't think to bring people's glasses to the hospital. So I always ask a family member, you know, can you bring their glasses in? Um, but with the older adults, you know, they're just uh, not to generalize, but a lot of them just aren't wearing, they have glasses or they have a prescription, but they're not wearing them. So making sure that, you know, they're being consistent with the recommendations they have. Um, chronic conditions. So when people have, you know, things such as you know, diabetes, um, hypertension, you know, all of these things that are kind of putting them at a higher risk due to medications mm -hmm. or side effects from, um, you know, that, that disease process. So, you know, loss of sensation, yep. you know, possibly um, if with the diabetic population. And then the biggest issue that we can that I feel like we can control that's a, those are a lot of those are intrinsic issues yep the extrinsic factor that we can control is the environment so you know what can we do as OTs to help make recommendations that's the question we need to ask in this client's environment so you need to look at that it can be any environment it can be the environment in the nursing home the hospital room their home, um, you know, kind of starting micro, like the environment they have, where they're at, and then building from there, you know, if they're, if they are in the community, or if they are returning to work, or they are going, um, you know, back to place, you know, going back and joining, um, not joining, but returning to their places that they like to go, you know, kind of, but I always like to start micro. Um, just to kind of figure out, but that's, those are some of the, I mean, there's so many issues, but those are the largest contributing factors, I would say. <laughs> so where, so you, you mentioned before, like with the assessments and even in my experience on the ward, that a lot of this sort of fall stuff is either MD or is sort of general enough that anyone can do it. So where do you see I guess, is there a, a role specifically in any of that that OT is best suited for or better suited for than other professions? Where is OT's niche when it comes to to falls prevention? Is there a niche? Well, I mean, there might not be. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there, I mean, there is. I mean, I just, I, well, I mean, I, I always like to start with the most functional and the most basic is just every activity we do, you know, whether it's, you know, from getting up in the morning to go use the restroom to standing at the sink to brush our teeth to, um, you know, getting in and out of our car to drive to work. I mean, everything we do, you know, as an individual is something that an OT assesses. So that is all of those things can put you at a risk for falling. So if you're hurrying, for example, like I'll use the bathroom. If you're hurrying in the middle of the night to get to the restroom. So and you don't have a light on, you may trip and fall. Um, if you if you stand up, you know, too fast and you're dizzy, you may fall, you know, may fall over. So I always kind of like to start as an OT when I'm assessing someone is just observe, obviously we always observe, but observing what they're doing and trying to do that task analysis of what are they doing that could put them at a risk for falling right now? You know, what are they doing that's good, but 
because we always like to see the good. That's part of our <laughs> profession, yep. you know, but we do really need to try to see not to be um, on the flip side. We need to see like, okay, well, when they are doing this and let's say the environment's different, it's dark, it's at night, it's nighttime. Um, could this possibly be a fall risk? You know, so that that's how I feel like not our niche, but just where we're, kind of we're looking at things we're breaking things down in a way that I feel like maybe other professions um, don't do as much of that you know we're really mm -hmm. I mean we break down every task you know so and so many different steps so I mean it could just be the, um, the one of a hundred steps that possibly triggered that fall you know, so because I was thinking before when you're talking about the the risk factors and the things that can contribute to falls uh and again it's probably just ot brain but i was like well think of all the things that go into successfully taking even two steps like mm -hmm. the like you said there's cognitive processes there's muscle tone there's range of motion stuff there's balance there's a million Everything. different like it's even just even if you're just thinking about say two steps on even ground there are a million different processes that go into actually making that happen. Uh, everything from, you know, speed of nerve conduction and that kind of stuff, like right down to the microscopic uh, physiology type stuff that we learned about in uni. Any of those or anything that affects any of those processes potentially could be putting that person at a risk of fall even if any, any. none of it nothing else is affected just one of those things anything any tiny right. little thing that's affected that goes into making a person or making a human body take those two steps could be putting them at a risk and then on top of that like how often are we only walking on even surfaces or only right. taking two <laughs> steps so then we've got things like fatigue, we've got things like uneven ground, we've got uneven well, weird footwear. Uh, we've got, you know, if we're wearing backpacks, we've then got unbalanced, uh, like a different balance and a, a new equilibrium that are trying to work with. Um, there's just, it's so ridiculously complex. When you actually think about what goes into walking which is something that most of us don't think about when we do it it's just something that you know we started when we were baby and we've been doing it ever since it's really but, hard mean, it's a dynamic product like you said it's also dynamic and I, everything we do is dynamic i mean there really isn't you know in therapy we say oh we're gonna do a static sitting mm -hmm. activity nothing we do in life is static I can't think of one thing I do, maybe sleeping, but that's it. You know, I mean, there is a... <laughs> Depends on the person, I guess. Some people yeah, roll right. around a lot. And... <laughs> right, exactly. Sleep on but the bus. But I mean, we, and that's, what, you know, I try to, when I'm, when I'm practicing, I'm trying to, you know, recreate or recreate or facilitate as many dynamic things as possible because that's real life. I mean, nothing is static. So, yeah, I mean, that's, like you said, it, it's just a co combination of so many different things and they all have to work together. Mm. It's actually, a, you know, surprising that people don't fall as, as much as they, as 
many times as they oh, do. Yeah, that's <laughs> testament to the human body again. The fact that right. we're not just constantly falling over. It reminds exactly. me of those. I don't know if you've seen like those Boston dynamic robot dog things that are just constantly like just mm-hmm. falling over. Like it just reminds me of that. Like why mm-hmm. don't we? Why aren't we like that? Right. But the other thing is, like you said, is that we're all we're we're, we're a, just a myriad of dynamic processes, and I wonder whether or not. And this is something I think we probably would be good at as OTs, but I wonder whether or not we're better off looking at falls prevention as a, uh, I guess, a series of risk processes as of rather than risk factors. Well, because, like mm-hmm. I said, there's a billion different right. things that could actually right. cause a fall. Whereas when we're looking at processes, and you can, from an OT perspective, you could look at it of as you know those processes that we go through every day. Like you know, I need to go from here. I need to go to the toilet. I need to come back. Right. There's a process. What are mm-hmm. the risks within that process, as opposed to the right. individual things? Because then you'd end up. Right. No one right. wants to document that. <laughs> right. And that's what I always ask, like when I'm working in a client's home or in the, when I say home in the community, I always say, just take me through your typical morning, like demons, just show me, you know, where, show me the favorite chair you like to sit in, show me, you know, which route you take to go to the, to the restroom, you know, show me if you wanted to get something to drink, demonstrate, you know, how you would go about doing that, you know, and they're like, yeah, sometimes it's, Obviously, it's hard when they don't really want to go to the restroom or they don't really want to go to the kitchen. But, you know, try, yeah. Um, yeah, just simulate, not even simulating it. I like to see it, but just say, I just need to see what you're doing on a, in a typical day when you're here by yourself or um, if the doorbell rings, I want, you know, walk to the door, you know. I mean, just observing what people are doing in their home is just the best way. I think OTs in the community can kind of assess um, fall, you know, like you said, those processes, the mm. pro, you know, of what's happening. And that's just, I mean, I'm just talking, like I was saying, very micro scale, not on the home right now. I'm not even talking about the community at large. I'm yeah, just yeah. talking about, you know, what's happening in their home. The majority of fall, we're going to say the majority, over half of falls reported are happening in people's homes. And right now, with COVID-19, older adults are home. Mm. So I'm, you know, I, I can't make any assumptions, but I mean, I'm, I'm going to, <laughs> right. But I mean, everyone's, I mean, the older adults, they're home, you yeah. know, they, they're in their home more. And that's why I feel like the topic right now is so important and so crucial because it, you know, older adults right now are in their home. They're not getting the extra, you know, they're not getting the activity. They're not getting out. They're not socializing. So we're, there's also right now, there's the, the risk of isolation. There's the risk of you know, more reports of depression. I mean, this is your area of practice. So, mm. you know, there's the feelings of helplessness and all of these things have been proven. You know, the evidence is there to show that all these things are also risk factors for fall. So now we have this. Yeah, right. Side, yeah. I, mean, so, I was going to ask about that because when I did the, yeah. The, the So the link on your Instagram uh, leads mm-hmm. to this false test. And when I did that test, right. one of the questions was about, it didn't say depression, but it said, do you feel sad often or something right. like that? And I was like, mm-hmm. what's that got to do with it? Right. So, so is there that, is, that a, is a risk factor. Yeah. 
Yes, evidence, oh, yeah. the evidence, and, and it's the chicken or the egg for me, because sometimes with people, you know, or did, does someone have a history of falls and that history of falls has led to them to possibly a higher fear of falling and they're not leaving their home due to a fear of falling. So possibly now they're depressed, you know, so what is causing yeah, yeah. that, you know, so, you know, that's a, a different conversation. But if you look at the current evidence, like if you go to in the research databases now, and you're, I'm looking at stuff that's recent, and you put, um, you know, for your search terms, falls and um, isolation, you're going to see there's a lot of evidence that is, is pointing towards that, you know, when people are isolated, and they are alone, and they are um, having, like you said, more reports of things like depression or feelings of loneliness and helplessness, that that is actually, there's a correlation with a higher report of fall. So it's there. I mean, the evidence is there. Hey, I literally just Googled exactly what you just said. The very <laughs> first thing that came up was uh, a link between fall, social isolation, and loneliness, a systematic review. Okay. That's and like that is the number one thing that comes up. Right. That's unreal. And it and it's and I think that's why I feel like the topic is so important right now, you know, because of what's going on in the world and older adults are alone and they're isolated. So that's so I think it's important. That's really curious to me. Like I wonder whether it's and I'm not going to read this thing right now, but <laughs> I wonder whether it's to do with the fact that sort of if you are alone and you are isolated that you're not going to be moving around you're not going out and so it's like right. it's, it's kind of like right. a use it or lose it situation where you know if there's no reason to you know use those muscles in your legs or mm -hmm. use the, your stabilizers or anything like that as much as you normally would then they kind of deteriorate and then you're at a higher risk i wonder whether there is like a physical uh or like it yeah i don't know <laughs> a process <laughs> right it is um and like you were saying i think the link the, the National Council on Aging, which is ncoa.org, um, they have a 12-question survey or screen that you can go to, you know, and so if you're a therapist and or student and you're working with someone, that would be a great kind of screen. If someone is saying, oh, I'm not falling or I haven't had a fall, that would be maybe the next step because if that asks, like you said, it digs a little bit deeper. It asks things like, you know, are you holding on to the furniture? Um, have you have you been using your cane? You know, do you have any loss of feeling in your feet? So there's lots of questions, but it kind of hits on different topics, not just have you had a fall. You know. So. Yeah, and I think, like I said, that was one of the risk things. Like I would never have even considered. Uh, so I think that's one of the things. Even you know, I've been an OT. I think we graduated probably pretty close to the same time I think mm -hmm. from having a look at it uh, so I've been an OT as long and had no idea that that was a thing and <laughs> it affects people in the populations that I've worked with as well like I have worked with people who uh, have falls and that sort of stuff but a lot of the and a lot of the reasons that they were doing that was to do with medications and like you said before about polypharmacy you know I'd have 
a person who, you know, had depression, was on an antidepressant, the antidepressant was giving them vertigo, they had another medication for the vertigo, that vertigo medication was making them constipated, so they had Mervicol. And it's just like this constant chain reaction of topping up on medications to fix whatever the other medications had caused. And in the end, yeah, okay, they might find this happy middle ground with all the doses and all the medications where their mental state was good and they were able to function, but there's still going to be some effect. And just the fact that you're putting that much medication in can have an effect on reaction speeds, can have an effect on you know dizziness and balance and that kind of stuff. Like even just the reaction speed example, if you're... Most people, if you, you know, trip on a, a mat or something, have the reaction speed. I say most people, that's generalization. I don't actually know if it is most people, but <laughs> you would hope that the average person would have the reaction speed to be able to quickly correct that step and not just fall on their face. Um, otherwise, I think a lot less people would actually have mats and stuff. But uh, if your reaction speed is compromised in any way, then yeah. one, you're probably not going to have the reaction speed to right your feet. And two, if you are falling, you may not have the reaction speed to put your hands out to try and sort of stop exactly. you burying your face in the concrete. So, yeah, so if, you're pro- if you're not processing things, you know, if your processing is slow for yeah. any reason, you know, age-related, which is something that does happen yeah. as we, that is a normal part of aging, you know, not the falls, but like you said, you hit on a, a good point. The processing um, time is, is, is delayed. So you're not going to write. Your body's not going to write, you know, as quickly. So, so are there, what, what can OTs do? All right. Let's talk about the fun stuff. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'll, I'll, um, I'll tell a funny, like a really funny tidbit. I, I speak in to groups here and where I, where I'm based. And last, a couple of years ago, I went to a group to speak. There were a hundred seniors that came. So this was the largest group I'd ever spoken to. Normally it's like 10, 15, maybe I think 30 at this point. So a hundred to me, that was, I was on a stage. I had a microphone, you know, it was, I felt like I made it, you know, <laughs> and, um, and the gentleman that set, set it up told me that the week before they had a coin collector come in, you know, and that was, awesome and they were all and so I was this was that was a hard act he told me to follow you know so here I am I'm going to come in and talk about fall prevention you know and and um it that's <laughs> not as most, exciting will, as coin collecting not apparently. as exciting most of the crowd was asleep <laughs> I will say most of them were asleep um Tough it was <laughs> it was after lunch and so it was it's a, a senior it was a senior community and so Long story short, I said, I got to get these people's attention. Like, how am I going to get them to like buy into what I'm trying to sell today, which is, you know, how to reduce your risk of falling. So I I said, okay, I just need a show of hands. Who wants to stay in their home for as long as reasonably possible and not move in with their uh, son or daughter? And it was like, everybody, you know, raised their hand, you know, because that is like the last thing. I mean, that they don't want, nobody wants to leave their home, but it's kind of funny to think about it. Like they don't want to move in with their children, you know, so they don't want to be told what to do. Yeah. You don't want their, so that was, (laughs) um, so anyway, that, that was just something that sometimes I feel like we have to try to make it 
exciting when we're OTs to get people to buy in. And then we can, you know, we can't just start with, all right, this is what you need to do yeah. so you don't fall. We need to kind of set it up in a way of who wants to we'll make not it, break a hip. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and make it you know as client centered as possible. You know, what do you want? You know, finding out like, okay, if you fell, you know, what would happen? You yeah. know, if you had a fall and you and so I think sometimes I like to start there versus just going through the house and going, okay, we need to pull up this throw rug and we need to change this light and you know, I mean, because then they're like, okay. You, you leave you and to, nothing gets You done. need to get their buy-in. And I think that's – I think OTs uh, – Oh, yes. I, I think that, that that's a lesson that OTs can take into many practice areas because I've seen them not do the best at that in a lot right. of different areas where they just, you know, whip out the prescription. Here, you need this and this and this. And their client or the person that you're working with is like, I don't want that. Like, well, I'm not going to use that. Like, why yeah. would I need that? Because it's not really you don't have the buy-in. They're not they're not yeah. invested in the what you're offering. So like, yeah, and I'd be the same. I'm like, if you're just going to give me stuff and I don't know why I need it or I don't think I need it, I'm not going to use it. Especially if that insight is not there. If they don't yeah. think they need something, there. And I like to try to try to approach it that you're talking to someone and not at them. You know, you're you're having a conversation with them. You're working with them. You're not like. I'm telling you what to do because I'm the expert, yeah. you know, they, they don't care. You know? <laughs> I mean, especially when I, for me, I, I'm 40 now, but I, when I started practicing, I was 20, I guess I was 29. I looked like I was 15, you know, and people just didn't <laughs> take me seriously, you know? So I just have one of those, you know, it's not a bad thing, but you know, I just, Talking to all these people, they didn't want to listen to what I had to say. So I had to make, you know, I have to sell it in a way that, like you said, get them to buy in and understand like that I want to work with them and I want to work on what's important to them. But I also like, you know, just trying to approach it that way. But so what can OTs do? Well, when we talk about home modification, that, that is, like I said, that's one of the, I feel like the most influential thing we can do as OTs is try to modify, or not say modify, just assess the environment and make recommendations to modify the environment. There's also a misconception that that's costly. And I think a lot of clients don't really want to talk about that because they think like, oh, I'm, I don't, you know, I don't have the resources to do that on money. And it, it's not, it, I mean, it can be mm. depending on the environment. And when you're talking about, you know, remodeling bathrooms and, and changing flooring, yes, but we, I'm talking about, very low cost things that OTs can recommend. And um, so when we're, when we're talking about the environment, I always start with lighting. Lighting to me is an easy place to start because when you walk into a client's room, think about a hospital room, the lights are off. You know, when you walk into the nursing home, the light is, they're sitting in the dark. You know, when you walk into someone's room, they have, I mean, their home, they have one lamp on, you know, and the blinds are shut. Yeah. And um, so I always just try to encourage people, you know, try to illuminate your space as much as possible. Use overhead lighting if you have it. Um, so, you know, getting encouraging people to actually turn on the light. You know, that's that's one thing we can start with. As I sit and here changing, in this very dark room, yeah. <laughs> right. I'm looking around going, I'm, I'm in a high risk at the moment. Right. This is terrible. 
But I mean, I hate to, I mean, I don't want to say I hate to generalize, but I mean, just in the 11 years that I've been doing it, I, I will say nine times out of 10, when I walk into a person's room or home, it's dark, mm-hmm. you know, so uh, just trying to get people to, like I said, turn the lights on. And if they do, if they don't have overhead lighting and they do have a lot of lamps throughout their house, I try to um, recommend possibly a different, possibly a different bulb, more of a translucent, translucent bulb that doesn't give off a, a glare or kind of and more of a clear light, a clear white bright light versus that yellow light that has the glare, changing out lampshades. So you have a, a lamp with a black lampshade or a dark brown lampshade. I mean, you could go. You never uh, feel that in my house. Yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking, I'm going, I'm going to frosted bulb with a black lampshade next to my oh, bed yeah. like, right now I'm right, waking right, up an right. office lamp in here the roof lights <laughs> off there's like led lighting on the desk that's about it yeah I'm, okay so, yeah i mean those are just some simple like what i always say like start with lighting okay so when you're thinking about the environment you know that those are some things night lights i say night lights but there i have a few on my desk here because I, I had them in my son's room you know just the little lights that plug into the wall and um, that'll, that I actually, there's, these are the smart ones that when the lights go off, these turn on. Yep. So they automatically turn on as the lights go off. And they're very inexpensive. Um, so night lights. And I always try to encourage when I'm working with my clients, if you get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, turn a light on. If you, you know, tur- turn your lamp on. Or a lot of people like to leave their bathroom light on maybe they'll crack the door and and something you know just to make sure they can see where they're going yeah and that's a you know that's more like at night when it's dark but i definitely encourage um more lighting and the proper lighting like you said the frosted i had someone that i worked with recently and they had their hallway light they had a nice big hallway light but it had that frosted cover over it yeah. So it just it, it didn't really illuminate the hallway, which a hallway has no windows. So you know it just. So that was something that I I encouraged them just to switch out that light fixture. You yep. know, go to less than ten dollars and switch out that light fixture. So um, opening, you know, curtains and drapes and letting that natural light come in as well. So. Uh, lighting is just a, a place that I always encourage people to start. So that's one thing that we can do. Um, the other thing is, you know, making sure the environment isn't cluttered, making sure there's not, you know, any obstacles in the way. Like I was using the example of having someone walk through their home. Okay. So, you know, walking down the hallway, making sure they don't have books lined up, you know, in the hallway. And like I was talking about my grandmother, her nasal cannula <laughs> dragging on the floor, you know, so. So just making sure that you can re- remove obstacles. Now, I will say, people can be, you know, they don't want you to go in and start moving their things. I do not no, recommend as an home. OT, a new grad, don't go in and start moving moving around your, your client's belongings. You know, you need to make the recommendation. If they're willing, you know, to allow you to move things, then, then you can do that. But don't don't take that role because that will, you'll get some um, resistance there. You know, if you try to do that, Uh, I had a lady that had a throw rug. It was a very small, like a three by five rug in her kitchen. And it was covering kind of a a 
place on her flooring that was messed up. And that's why she had it there. It was more for cosmetic reasons. And every week she would allow me to move the rug. And then every week when I came back, the rug was in the same place. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, she was at least agreeable for me to move it when I was there, but I always asked for permission. You know, I would never just go in and move something. So reducing clutter and making sure that, you know, people have that clear path, you know, so if, if it's not just maybe clutter, it could just be moving furniture around a little bit. So that's what you really have to talk to the, the client about, the caregiver about. <clears throat> so I would start there. Now, if you're looking at an inpatient setting, in a, in like in a hospital, that's what I was saying, that um, it's our job. Like when we leave the room, we want to make sure, I always say like, leave it better than you found it. You know what I mean? Like if making sure that, you know, everybody, you know, if you walk into a room and there's trash on the floor and, you know, the roommate's robe is on the ground, you know, just trying to make it so if the person does need to get up to go to the restroom, they have that pathway. So um, reducing clutter, Um, like you were saying, shoes, proper footwear, that's a big one, you know, so making sure that people are aware. Okay, so we recommend, you know, when in the hospital, I don't know how it is where you are, but everybody gets these socks here with the tread on the, the bottom do you guys get stuff. those yeah the uh, okay. not everyone but I, they are available okay. yeah so i will we so here in the u.s that is like when you get when you're admitted to a hospital it's like you that's like everyone gets those socks it's like you have to that's awesome. and i um like even when i i was in the hospital i was um i've had two children so i was and i had c-sections for both so i was a lot kind of a four-day hospital stay for each child and i had to wear those socks you know, to the bathroom when I would get up, you know, I'm like, here I am. I'm one of my own patients, you know, got to put on my yellow grip stuff. <laughs> um, but, you know, making sure, you know, if you're in an inpatient setting that someone's wearing, you know, they're wearing their grip socks, they're not wearing the bedroom slippers that slip on with, you know, the slick bottoms and flip flops and, you know, all the things that you see people wear, but, um, you know, making sure that not just the footwear is proper footwear, but that it's, that it's fitting properly. Mm. So when you're working with, for me in my situation, I have people that possibly are wearing shoes that, but that they're the right shoe. Okay. So they're that they pass that test, but it's, that's not fitting properly for whatever reason, you know, they have excessive swelling, possibly they have, you know, some edema or something that that shoe, unfortunately is not a good fit anymore. So, you know, making sure that they are, you know, I refer, I refer, I re- you refer out a lot to the podiatrist and um, making sure that, you know, they're, like I was saying, always keeping that open line of communication with their healthcare practitioners of what's going on. Because, you know, if I do notice any changes, and that's, like you said, one of those little contributing factors, you know, so that, you know, the swelling is affecting their shoe fitting properly, which is affecting now we've got a, yeah snowball effect here of other things. So footwear, recommending proper footwear. Um, also, what else can we do? We making sure that their environment. So when they, like I said, using the appropriate equipment. So if the physical therapist or occupational therapist, whoever has recommended they use a cane or a walker, walking device, whatever they're using, that A, they're using it. B, they're using it correctly. I mean, I think we need to make sure that we're always assessing the equipment to make sure it's working properly, you know, and 
Is it adjusted at the correct height? Are they using it? I mean, how many times have you seen somebody use something, you know, but they're not using it the right way? You know? <laughs> um, the walking walkers, wheeled walkers are a big one for me because I've yeah. yet to see anyone who's just like gone and got right. one and even knows how the brakes work. I've had people who don't even know that the brakes are there. I'm right. like, how oh, do you not oh. just like roll off down the hill? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, I, I, I think of uh, there was at one place that I worked with. There was a gentleman that had a rolling walker, and and he would, you know, he would always just sit, like you said, you know, you would run, run. You would see him go to sit, and everybody would run towards him, you know, to grab <laughs> onto it, and you know, he'd say, "Ah, leave me alone. I got it." You know, I got it. Um, but yeah, just making sure they're using it correctly, assessing that equipment, and you know, things in the bathroom. So we're looking at things like elevated toilet seats and shower chairs, you know, do they have the right ones? Are they installed properly? So, you know, we make the recommendation as in when we're working on the inpatient side, but, you know, when we're seeing people in the community, we need to make sure that the equipment is actually installed properly, you mm. know, and um, grab bars are put in at the correct height. I mean, I may recommend a grab bar, but then someone might install it, but it, it's not, you know, functional because yeah, it's yeah. maybe not installed properly or, um, so, you know, looking at all of the equipment modifications that we can do and just really making sure the, the environment is set up in a way that people can retrieve items that they use frequently. So, you know, okay, I want you to walk to your dresser and I want you to, you know, show me where you keep your socks and your underwear, you know, things and making sure, you know, it's something as simple as, you know, relocating those items from the bottom drawer to the top drawer, mm. you know, I mean, that's thinking about when you're going to the refrigerator, okay, I want you to go to the refrigerator and, um, you know, get your soda that you want or whatever, and making sure that it's, you know, in the front and not the back and, you know, not in that bottom drawer that you're having to lean over and get that it's possibly, you know, somewhere that's more easily accessible, you know, so it's just, like I said, that's why we're so good at doing this as OTs, because it's just little tiny environmental changes that can be made, you know, in someone's environment that can, can help reduce their risk of fall. So um, those are some things that I, I like to encourage people to do, you know, being active. So I, I'm here, I am, I'm going back to the adult population, but trying to encourage that people are, you know, um, participating in something that I want to go say, or use the keep saying evidence-based, but that it's evidence-based. So we're trying to find a program that is evidence-based to promote balance and, and reduce their risk of falls. You know, Tai Chi, or there's, there's all types of activities. And um, if you go on the National Council of Aging's website, they have a long list of all of these evidence-based programs that a lot, I will say, a lot of places are implementing. So just finding the right one and I mean, you know, even if they don't want to do one of those, if they're telling me, oh, I'm going to a movement class at my senior center, that's great. You know, just something to stay active. Um, so activity, you know, is, and then I like to always try to, as an OT, always go back to that recommend or not recommending, just encouraging participation in something that's meaningful. So like, finding out, you know, what is meaningful to them, you know, kind of the core of what we do as an OT and trying to hit on, you know, not just treating it from a, you know, what can I do to help this person 
physically or environmentally, but what can I do to kind of help like tap into what is important to them, you know, because that's something that, you know, we're, we're good at too. So. Yeah. I remember reading a while ago, uh, studies that were looked at one of the biggest things that people can do to help prevent falls in the future is maintain muscle mass. And it seems really like, Oh, okay. But then when you think about like what goes into that, well, you have to actually move, you have to move against some kind of resistance, whether that's, you know, hiking up hills or walking around Mm -hmm. a lot more than you usually do. Like it's, uh, it gets you out, it gets you engaging, and there's a whole myriad of other benefits that come along with that, as we know. Um, I know in Australia anyway, there's been a, a, quite a few like strength programs that uh, were mm-hmm. up there on the news and all sorts of stuff, specifically target at older people for the prevention of gaining muscle mass and maintaining muscle mass so that they right. don't have these issues when they you know get a little bit older. Um, I, I know it's only that one thing, like the muscle mass is only that one example, but I think I've always been a, a big believer that, you know, prevention's better than cure. And I think that oh, yeah. this, like, yeah, we are looking at all of these things and trying to prevent falls in older persons, but if you're not working in older persons, there's still a lot of stuff you can do and recommend and provide for people in you know say 40s 50s up to 65 to try and prevent them from even getting into that risk area uh so i think this is something that all ot's can start looking at like i you know you can i pediatric ot's look at balance and walking and tone and all that sort of stuff and then all of a sudden we just stop for about 60 years and then we start again when they're 65. <laughs> we start again, right, right, right. It's like, what, what, what happened in the in between? Why don't we just forget right, this? Right. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I feel like it's something that, I mean, I'm not working clinically at the moment, but it was something that was coming in when I, just as I was stepping out, but it's something that I feel like should be another big part of what we look at. Even if it's not something that's directly addressed, like you're not going to say like, oh, we're, it'd be good if you did this because in 20 years we don't want you to fall down the stairs and get a brain you know, a brain injury or something like that. But just for general health, a lot of the stuff that you can do to help prevent this stuff is stuff that you should be looking at doing for general health anyway. It's, you know, exercise and eating well and all of those kinds of things and keeping your brain active and, you know, all of these things that we should be doing anyway. Why are we not doing (laughs) these things? um, Well, here, there is an issue, like our, so I guess our biggest um, insurance provider for older adults here in the U.S. is Medicare. So in the United States, there is an initiative where primary care physicians, so they're, they're, you know, the physicians, their primary doctor will do a fall assessment on their annual wellness check. So that is being done if you're a Medicare recipient or, you know, over the age of 65, you know, in the United States or 64, but, you know, like you said, if you're 40, like I'm, I'm turned 40 this year. My doctor's not asking me, you know, if I'm falling. I mean, they, yeah. they barely ask me if I'm exercising, you know. They, 
they they just take my blood pressure and you know run some blood work and I'm out of there you know that's basically um what they're doing but yeah I, I agree with you like we're just here I mean I, I say here because I'm obviously here in the United States we're we're such a reactive healthcare fall risk prevention is more it's such a proactive model you know and if we can work you know look at it through the lens of being proactive versus reactive then you know there's so many things that can come from that you know so i i definitely think that as a new grad or or even someone that's been practicing for a few years like there are so many opportunities for community outreach mm. in fall risk prevention so even if it's not your area of practice something that you feel like you want to try to just spread awareness or advocate for you know, so many things you can do. You can, you know, like I said, reach out to, you could senior centers or religious organizations or, you know, whoever has that population, that demographic that you want to re you know, reach and ask if you can come in and do a balance screen. Hmm. You know, can I come in and do balance screens one day? And can I come in and, and talk about fall risk prevention? Or I work, uh, like I was telling you as an adjunct, and I've been able to use the student and I say use the students, but, you know, <laughs> work with the students. My students are going to probably listen to this. So, yeah, they're going to say, oh, you, but they know that I love them. They're great. But um, they facilitate, the, you know, the ideas that I have. Like they, I tell them like, okay, this is what I want to do. And um, But they're great about going out because they have the time to do it. You know, they have the time to go out in the community and, and really, you know, speak to whatever it is, if it's older adults and forest prevention, or if it's kids in schools and backpack awareness, or, you know, whatever topic they're working on, they have that ability to kind of get out more in the community. And as we get more comfortable in our careers, we kind of lose that focus. And we don't, you know, obviously, we've got other things, you know, we've got job, um, priorities and family priorities but I, I do like to just try to encourage practitioners to try to have that if they have the time you know get back to that community awareness piece of advocating for not just fall risk prevention because that's what's important to me but whatever they're interested in you know and I think another thing that I just thought of while you were saying that is it's not always just sort of direct client contact that you can do this like nothing's as contagious as an idea. We know that now with the internet. Like we have viral videos. You can, 10 million people can watch a video of a cat jumping off a couch or something. Like mm -hmm. if we educate, if you work in young adults and you educate them about like these are the things that can affect you as you get older, even if it's with regards to something that's relevant to them, say a medication they're on, etc. You know, you might not feel these uh, things right now, but... You know, as you get older, sometimes this can happen. Educating them about the risk factors for falls, then they go, oh, wait, my mum and dad are a bit like that. Like, I'll go and have a talk to them or, you know, grandma's like this or like it's uh, that promotion, that awareness and not just targeting, I guess, the people that are directly at risk. So the people like if you do a screen, and it comes up and says you're high risk. Like, oh, we're not just targeting those people. We're trying to educate everyone, everyone. about yeah. uh, the risks because that's what they are. They're risks. They're not. It's not going to say you're definitely going to have a fall, but it's a uh, you know 
different things create different levels of risk of you having a fall. And we don't want anyone to have a fall, ideally. Obviously, we that's a, a, a pie-in-the-sky kind of mission to stop falls completely because, you know, it's we're still human after all. But we are, and I did an episode not long ago about uh, harm minimization. This is the same thing. We're trying to harm minimize with regards to falls. Mm-hmm. Like the harm that it causes, I think, you know, I touched on this earlier, but, you know, the harm that it causes is just, it, it does plant a seed of the fear of falling mm. again, you know, and once you have one fall, then you're at a risk of falling again. So it's like, it's just all of these things that it, it just starts, you know, the process, you know, all of these, that initial fall, sorry, contributes to so many different factors. So for OTs that maybe aren't well-versed or want to look into this more, are there resources? Where where can people find this sort of yeah. information out from? Um, so there's – well, I always start with the evidence. If you're interested in – you know, like you said, just start with the evidence. Go to, go to PubMed. Go to, um, you know, the research databases that you have access to. But the National Council on Aging, which is the ncoa.org here in the – I feel like they have such a – wealth of information may have a fall prevention toolkit that you can use AOTA, which is our professional organization here. They also have under the productive aging, um, they have a fall prevention toolkit. I've actually used a lot of their marketing materials, which are great. Um, going to the centers here in the U S the CDC website. I mean, there's just so many places you can go. You really don't, have to you know spend any money to kind of acquire these resources they're there you know it's um it's that's what i was saying about you know being one of the few things that we can find that we don't have to maybe take a a course on or go back to school to study so i'm back i'm actually in school again my husband's like please tell me this is it like please like this has to be it, you know, like, yeah, problems. but, and, you know, I'm, so I am studying falls, you know, so, but I, you don't have to go back to school to, to study falls, to implement falls, like the fall risk prevention. So yep. you just, you can just do it. <laughs> so one thing I've just noticed too, having a look at the NCOA website is right now it's September 24th. It's falls prevention week. Yay. I know. That's <laughs> that's why. I was getting all excited about it when you said we could do this this week. I was like, so I I pitched a a news story to my local news outlet. They didn't buy it, you know, and I I emailed, I called, you know, I tried to call people I knew and work my contacts, you know, just anything to get in the door. But they said, "Ah, you know, there's just nothing really glamorous about falls you know trying to sell the falls so when you said we could do the podcast this week i thought oh this is awesome because it's fall risk prevention awareness week you know yeah what a coincidence yes see i didn't actually know that so it's genuinely yeah. a coincidence. <laughs> september 21st to 25th yes yeah, so this week is it's an annual an annual initiative that they do and there's that's what i'm saying their website's great because if you're a if you're a therapist you you know, go to go on social media, spread awareness, you know, use that as a tool um, to spread awareness on forest prevention. And like you said, 
maybe not to reach other OTs, but to reach or to to reach, you know, your grandparents, your parents, your aunts mm-hmm. and uncles, you know, your neighbor, you know, who who might take that information, um, who might benefit from that information. That's awesome. Are there any other resources you think that uh, we need to be aware of or any other places that OTs can get more information? Maybe a certain uh, Instagram account. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not good at self-promotion, you know, like... Yes. So That's what I'm I have, here for. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, so yes, I do have the OT advocate and that is where I like to, it started as an Instagram page for my students. So I started it um, for my lab, for a lab class I had a few years ago and my students would go on and post things. And then as I've kind of evolved what I'm, what I'm doing professionally, kind of in my own research, I decided to, kind of make it more of my professional page where I share resources on virus prevention. So I'm going to, you know, keep adding to that, especially this week, but um, try to be more intentional with making the content there more based on fall risk prevention, because that is what I'm the most passionate about. And there's, like I said, that's how, how we connected the, the resources. Yeah. It seems to be quite a few of my guests, I'm realizing. <laughs> I, I, I get caught up, like I find a cool account and I start just going through all the different resources. And there's, there's some really interesting stuff on there. So definitely go along and check that out. I'll throw that link in the show notes. Uh, thanks so much for, for coming and having a chat. It's been fun. I've, I've learned a lot that I didn't have any clue about. I thought I was sort of fairly well versed on fall prevention and it turns out I have no idea. So now I feel more educated. So well done. (laughs) Well, thank you. I feel this was fun for me and I, uh, I just feel like in great company, uh, you know, like some of the people that you've interviewed in the past are the people that I, you know, those are the people that I look to, like Mandy Chamberlain. And, you know, I mean, they're just, that's, so it, it's really, you know, exciting to kind of be able to contribute in any, you know, like I said, icing on the cake the other day. Like I wanted to contribute, but being on the podcast was, you know, definitely icing on the cake for me. Yeah. I just took. So everyone knows what we're talking about. Aaron originally <laughs> offered to contribute to an episode, and I was like, "I hope you mean by contribute, I hope you mean that you're going to actually come on and talk to me about it." So I'm glad that you did, because <laughs> it would have been really weird. Obviously, I've just proven that I didn't know very much about falls prevention, so that would have been a very awkward episode—just me talking about how I fell over, probably. So it's much, much, much better having you here. Well, thank you. If you liked this episode and want to check out more, head over to OccupiedPodcast.com or search Occupied Podcast in your favorite podcasting app. If you have thoughts or reflections on the topics discussed today, please do get in contact. We'd love to hear from you. And lastly, if you got some value from this and you want to help us out, like, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Remember, be good to yourself, be good to others, and always keep occupied.